Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning, everyone. How you guys doing today? Good. Super. Super. <laughs> Great to see you. Glad you guys are here. Awesome. Good to see you this morning. Hey, this morning we are finishing up our current series on A Perfect Union. It's going to be the last sermon message in our series, last week in this series. And so for some of you, I guess depending on your perspective, maybe that's good news for you. Um, you've just been waiting for this series to be over. Seriously, I think at the very least, hopefully you've gotten some good things out of it. You've been challenged in some ways. I mean, at the very least, what we can say is that we at least read through the entire Sermon on the Mount together, and we've gone through it together and discussed it over these past 10 weeks or so. And I think that's important because Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as we go through it, uh, many believe to be the most important message that has ever been uh, communicated to an audience ever in human history. I certainly believe that. And certainly the eternal implications and how this flows together is so important for us to hear. So I hope more than anything, it has been an opportunity. If you haven't, been gone, if you haven't gone through the Sermon on the Mount in a while, and if you haven't had a chance to just kind of sit and listen to Jesus' words, that this has been that opportunity for you to do that, at least in this series. Now I said, if you remember at the beginning of this series, that going through the Sermon on the Mount at this time was not, especially at this time of year, was not necessarily my first choice. But as I began to pray about it and as I felt kind of compelled by God, I felt like this was really the right choice to make in the end. I knew that getting into this series was going to bring up things like political images and languages like king and kingdom, and especially going through what we've been going through in this political season, that there would be a lot of tension as a result. But as I said, at the same time, I felt like this was important and it was right for us to do it at this time. And so we pressed through and we did it. And I would say, at the same time, there are, there are things that felt tense throughout this series. I felt the tension as I was preparing the sermons each week, as I was preparing the messages. I certainly felt it as I was up here on Sunday trying to communicate, realizing that if I say the wrong thing in the wrong way or say the wrong word, there might be an issue and I might miscommunicate or lead somebody to misunderstand what I mean. And so there's been a lot of tension throughout this series, I think, in a lot of ways, but I think it's been important for us to do, and I think it's been essential for us to do, and in the end, I still feel like it was a good thing for us to do, and uh, I will say, though, in a lot of ways that I, going through this series and preaching this series, I have not felt as emotionally and kind of mentally exhausted in a series in a long time as I have through this one, um, and in some ways, it's been great because my Sunday afternoon naps have been fantastic. As I've gone home, I like slept like a baby, only kind of waking up every once in a while to see my Broncos give up another touchdown here and there, but other than that, sleeping like a baby on Sundays these past several Sundays, it's been really great. But it has been exhausting, but I do feel like it's been worth it. And I hope you feel the same way. And we're going to continue. We'll, we'll, we'll conclude the series this morning. And as we do, I think what we're going to see is that as we have focused as much on, uh, you know, before the election, not losing our minds and losing our hearts going into the election, and then now on the other side of the election, realizing that we're still called to live in the kingdom in this world, uh, in a world that has still got turbulence and chaos all around us, we, we still have to live according to the way that Jesus has called us to live. It's just a different way of understanding what that might look like going forward. And so as we do, I think this, it's important for us to ground ourselves in what does it look like for us to live within the kingdom, not just as we go through this series, but even as we leave this series, what does this look like for us going forward as Christians? I want to end this series this morning with a quote that I used to begin this series. It's a quote from Pastor John Tyson, who's a pastor 
uh, in New York, and he was speaking about this season that was upcoming. I think this, he actually tweeted this out, if I'm not mistaken, sometime at the end of August. And he said this, how you treat people when they disagree with you is one of the greatest revealers of the heart. And we are headed into a season of massive revelation. I would expand that to say that for some of us, how we actually have engaged and handled this election season and how we're reacting to it is also another revealer of the heart. How we look at things around us and how they happen, whether for good or for bad from our perspective, how we handle those things and respond is a great revealer of our hearts. And I don't know what God has revealed to you through this series. Maybe he has reminded you of some things that you had maybe forgotten or maybe pushed aside that needed to be brought back to center for you. Maybe there were some new things that you learned that you'd never considered before. Maybe you had your emotions stretched and stirred throughout this for whatever reason, but through that, God has revealed to you certain things and taught you certain things through this series. I would encourage you that as we, as we kind of finish up this and we get into this last week, that this is a great time to just kind of, kind of pause and think about that. What has God taught me over this past season, and what can I take with me before I move on and go forward? As we get into this uh, next Advent season and Christmas and all the things, we know things get busy and things get chaotic. But what has God taught you? And can you take a place where you can stay, where you can sit in the moment and say, this is what God has taught me and this is what he is teaching me even now. So I think that's important before we finish this up to consider that what we've gone through has been a journey together in this Sermon on the Mount. And hopefully God has taught you and stretched you in a way that brings you closer to him. And as we get into the Sermon on the Mount this morning, we're going to finish uh, with Jesus' conclusion in the second half of Matthew chapter 7. This is really the conclusion to the entire Sermon on the Mount. And of course, as we've talked about before, as we've taken 10, 11 weeks to get through this sermon, Jesus is actually preaching this sermon at one point, at, uh, uh, at one point as one unit at one time in history. So in other words, it was a sermon that he preached to one audience at one time that took you know, maybe less than two hours or so to communicate the entire thing. And so we need to take it as much as we can as a whole. We've tried to do that. But one thing that we haven't gotten to yet is the conclusion of the sermon. That's what we get to today. And I tend to know a little bit about this, but I know that when you preach a sermon, a big part of the sermon is actually the conclusion. Because in a lot of ways, what you're trying to get everybody to in the conclusion of a sermon is to get them to a response, is to help them understand what was the overall point and what are they to do with what you have just communicated. And we're going to see that here this morning. Now, one thing that I have really enjoyed about this preparing this week is that I haven't really had to come up with a conclusion on my own because Jesus provides it himself. I think in a lot of ways as I've gotten through this, through studying for this sermon and getting ready for this morning, what I've thought to myself is that more than anything, I just need to do my best to just get out of the way and allow Jesus to bring the conclusion home. Because that's certainly what happens here in these last verses. Um, really, my job today is to allow these words to just challenge us because Jesus is going to call for a response in a challenging way. No matter who we are, no matter where we're at, if we're really hearing what Jesus is saying here this morning, it's going to be a challenge for us. It's going to stretch us. But it's the perfect way to end a sermon like this. And it would make sense. The perfect conclusion to the perfect sermon. And we're going to look at that here this morning as we look at Matthew chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 13. And as we do, Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Let's stop there for a moment. 
I want to stop after these first two verses. We're going to get through the whole thing, but I think we need to stop here and talk about the fact that what this is right here, this analogy that Jesus establishes, the comparison or contrast between the narrow way and the broad way, is actually the headline for the entire conclusion that we're going to read through today. You know, as Jesus typically does, when he wants to make an important point, he uses a metaphor or an image or an analogy. And this analogy that he uses here, the contrast between the narrow way and the broad way, actually determines everything else that he's calling our attention to. And as he talks about this analogy, this would have been one that made sense on two levels, especially to the people who were listening at the time. Because in Jewish thought, to walk along a way or to walk along a journey was often a metaphor for life. In other words, the way that you live your life, the path that you walk, is a metaphor for living the way that you follow your life. But at the same time, as you're walking, there is an understanding to which you are led by somebody and you are led by some kind of a teacher or a rabbi in particular. At the time, in fact, there were the ways of the Pharisees, there was the way of the Sadducees, there was the way of the Essenes, there was the way of the Zealots. I mean, there were all kinds of these different ways that you could follow if you were a Jewish religious person in the first century. And Jesus is confronting all of those and saying that those are all ways of living, but I'm telling you that there is a narrow way, a way that is different. And as we get down to this, it becomes obvious that what Jesus is saying is that all of these other ways of living are the broad ways that lead to destruction. There is only one way that leads to life, and it's through Jesus and his kingdom. Now, of course, Jesus uses this image to, import, uh, to communicate something important. The quick analogy points us to the fact, in the end, that we have to make a choice between these two contrasting ways. Jesus said you'll either choose the one, the way that lead, the narrow way that has a gate to it that leads to life, or the broad way that also has a gate to it, but its destination is ultimately destruction. And so, I think it's best to start with, what does Jesus mean by narrow, and why exactly does he call it the narrow way? I think there's two reasons for that. The first one is this, is that there is only one way with one gate to it. And as we kind of put together other places where Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it's not too hard to put together what Jesus is pointing to in this case, that he is the gate, he is the door. And the only way you get to the narrow path, the path that leads to life, is by coming through Jesus, by following his teaching, so to speak, as the rabbi, but even more than that, by him being your savior and your king. And then the second reason he says it's narrow, as he says here, is that those who find it are few. And maybe, and we can, you know, guess at why it is that those who find it are few. Maybe it's because it is only one way, and the Broadway has many different ways. In other words, the Broadway is every other way you could live. Maybe that's why few find it. Maybe few find it because, as Jesus says here, it's the hard way. It's not the easy way. The easy, comfortable way is the broad way that leads to destruction. But whatever it may be, it is sobering to realize at some, at some sense that in comparison, few will actually find the narrow way compared to many who will find the broad way. The broad way that leads to eternal destruction. Now, Jesus doesn't put a number limit on this. But in comparison, it seems like, if we're taking him uh, literally in what he says here, is that there will be less people who actually find the narrow way that leads to life than those who follow and lead to destruction. Now, these aren't comfortable words for us to hear. I think there's a reason for that. We're going to sense a theme in this, that the words that Jesus says in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount are not comfortable words. 
In fact, they're shocking, they're disturbing, they're difficult to hear, and I think they're meant to be that way. They're meant to shake up this group of people who are in front of him, these crowds who are listening. Because look, Jesus has just said, all of these other ways that lead to destruction are the ways of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, implying all these things. Well, there are Pharisees and Sadducees sitting among the crowds. As he says this, I mean, talk about an awkward situation. But Jesus is not trying to make people comfortable in this way. This is not, and, and this, I think, reframes the way that we understand the Sermon on the Mount in some ways. We think about the Sermon on the Mount in some ways as like these flowery, spiritual, religious language. It's meant to encourage us and inspire us. But when you get down to the conclusion of what this has all been about from the beginning, man, it's uncomfortable. And I think it's meant to be this way. It's meant to stretch us. It's meant to bring us to a place where Jesus offends us, but he offends us for the right reasons. You know, it's true, sometimes we need to be offended, but be offended for the right reasons. And this is meant to stretch us, it's meant to be uncomfortable, and it certainly seems, I think, for us, to be uncomfortable in the way that it seems so exclusive and intolerant in a culture that we live in which claims to value tolerance above all things. And so for us, it's difficult to realize that not only here, but in many places, Jesus claims exclusivity, and he draws a line in the sand. I think many times we aren't sure exactly what to do with this. You know, Pew uh, Pew Research, which is an organization that does a lot of surveys and research on what Americans believe in particular about spirituality and the church and Christianity, Uh, just did a recent survey and a study, and what they realized as a result of their study is that two-thirds of the American Christians that they surveyed, people who who self-identified, professing professing Christians, said that about almost two-thirds of those that they surveyed believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, that seems like a problem to me as I read what Jesus has just said here. And especially in situations like John chapter 14 where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in case you don't understand that, let me explain what I mean here. No one gets to the Father except through me. And I don't think we're doing anyone any favors by softening Jesus' words in these cases. These are meant to be shocking. They're meant to be offensive. They're meant to be uncomfortable. And again, sometimes we need to be offended for the right reasons because what's at stake here? Is nothing less than eternal destiny. I mean, is there anything more important than that? And Jesus tells us the truth about this because he loves us. He doesn't lie to us about this. He doesn't soften it in any way. He doesn't sugarcoat it because that actually wouldn't be truthful love in this case. Even if it is uncomfortable, even if it is offensive. C.S. Lewis famously said that if you read what Jesus says honestly in the Gospels, you have to conclude that Jesus was either Lord, he really was who he says he was, he was the Son of God, God in the flesh, he was a lunatic, he thought he was God, he thought he was the Son of God, but he was maybe mentally ill or bipolar or something, and he really wasn't. Or he was a liar, he knew he wasn't the Son of God, But he told people he was the Son of God because he wanted to lie to them. If you honestly read what Jesus says, and I think this is one of those places where C.S. Lewis probably came to that conclusion, is that as you read this, you can't come to any other conclusion than saying, Jesus says, I am the only way. I'm, I'm Lord. This is it. Every other way leads to destruction. 
And I think what we can't say is that Jesus is just another religious leader or a prophet. He can't be claiming in this case to be one of many options to salvation. He either is or he isn't, as he lays it out. Now here's one more important thing, I think, to realize about this analogy, especially as we, we respond to this. You know, there is a reason why Jesus says the gate comes before the path. He's not telling us that we have to walk this path, whatever path it may be, in particular the path that's difficult, the narrow path, and sometimes work through, or, and somehow work through this epic journey of difficulty so that we eventually arrive at the gate in which we go through to eternal life. The gate comes first. This is not like Lord of the Rings epic journey where we walk through all of these difficulties and if in the end, if we make it to the gate, then we survive and we get eternal life. The gate comes first. And Jesus is the gate. We walk through the gate and then that's when things start to walk along the narrow path. Now, Jesus, remember, is speaking to two different audiences. He's speaking to his disciples, those who have already entered the gate, so to speak, and he's preparing them for the fact that as you live in this world as a Christian, it will be difficult. But you are with me, and I am with you, and this path leads ultimately to life. It's your destiny. And at the same time, he's inviting those who have not made their decision to follow Jesus to say, look, this is a continued invitation to make this choice. Which choice are you going to make, the broad gate or the narrow gate? And so before we move on to the next section, I think it's important to pause and to realize what Jesus has said and how he's challenged us in these two verses, because again, they carry us through the next couple of sections. First of all, what Jesus has said in this is that a choice needs to be made. For every one of us, the question becomes, which gate will you go through? Which way will you go? According to Jesus, you only have two options. It doesn't matter if, you know, it doesn't, if, if it's not Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're atheist, it doesn't matter if you believe in this philosophy or that philosophy, or you're just kind of religious, or you're a spiritual person, or you're a new age person, it doesn't matter. If it's not through Jesus, then it's everything else, because broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many ways to go through it. But a choice needs to be made. And whether or not we are consciously making that choice, we feel like we're consciously making that choice. If we have chosen not to go through the narrow gate, we have made our choice. But ultimately, everyone makes a choice. Secondly, a life is changed. After going through the gate, in particular the narrow gate, we are given a new life. Our life changes. Our life becomes about, it, it changes the way we live. It changes the way ultimately what we live for. It changes our destiny. A lot of things change once you enter through that gate. But your life changes. And as a result of your life changing, a theme that we've hit over and over again through the Sermon on the Mount is that action will follow. As that path is changed, what you say, what you do, who we begin to be in our character and who we are as people and what we, what we consider to be the most important things in life, those things naturally change as our life changes in Jesus. Now, the next two parts of this sermon are all about what this looks like, how to really know that you've gone through the gate and how to really know that you're on the narrow path of the kingdom and also at the same time, how to recognize that in people's lives around you. So, with that in mind, Jesus continues in verse 15, and he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, in these sections, Jesus calls us back to the reality that the gate that you choose has real consequences in the world. And it actually has a consequence in in your life to such a degree that it causes a different way in which you live that, that becomes evident in your own life and becomes evident actually to other people who are around you. That we should expect that when our lives are transformed, that things actually change about how we live. Now, that doesn't mean that we're perfect, doesn't mean that we're without sin, none of those things. But it does mean that there should be some change in the way that we live, what we pursue, and what we prioritize in life. Jesus says, to such a degree that you should actually be able to see fruit in somebody's life from somebody who claims to have walked through this narrow way. Now, He focuses in particular in this section on false teachers and false religious leaders. So let's take a little bit of a closer look at what he says here. Remember, this just comes off of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus has said, do not judge. And so how do we get to a place where then we are in a position to kind of judge the spiritual state of someone's life? If we're to know them by their fruit, that's spiritual fruit, so we're kind of judging in that way. What exactly, is, there, is Jesus contradicting? Is, is, there, is there something, what do we have to work out in this tension? Well, remember last week when Jesus said do not judge, he doesn't mean that we, couldn't, that we can't discern between what is right and wrong and true and false and good and evil. We are certainly supposed to do that, otherwise we wouldn't be able to live wisely in this world, right? We'd just be paralyzed by not being able to make any kind of decisions and discernment and judgment about the world around us. What's good, what's right? I don't know, Jesus told me not to judge, so I just kind of kind of sit here and wait for something to happen. That's not how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to exercise discernment. And as you see in these two passages, actually, Jesus makes a distinction between the judgment that we're to exercise which is actually looking at the fruit of other people's lives, in particular religious leaders and teachers in this case, and being able to make a conclusion based on discernment about whether or not that person is a true believer, a true teacher, a true prophet, as he would say here, a true church leader, or not. And there's a warning implicit with this. Beware, because if you see that, you're supposed to avoid it, And not only that, but I think the implication is you're supposed to help others to avoid it as well. Now, when you take the other piece, where Jesus says, I never knew you, in verse 21, it switches to Jesus' judgment action. And Jesus' judgment action is different than discernment. Ultimately, Jesus hands out eternal judgment, the final ultimate judgment, which is something that we are not supposed to do. We may have discernment, and we may see that's something to be avoided, But at the same time, it's not our place to hand out eternal final judgment to anyone, even if we feel like they might be a false teacher or a false prophet. That's Jesus' business, and that's the distinction here. Now, even as Jesus says these things, he's aware that, again, many of the false teachers that he's condemning are right there in the crowds that he's speaking to. It's uncomfortable, again, but here's the thing about these religious leaders, as Jesus realizes. He's warning his disciples, but also those who have not decided to follow Jesus yet, that, hey, these religious leaders, what's probably most dangerous about them in some respects 
is that they look like sheep on the outside, but inside they're actually wolves. In other words, they look like the real thing, they say the right things, they may know the right things, and in many cases they may live morally in a way that kind of looks like the way that they're supposed to live, but inside their motives and the way that they do things and the reasons that they're doing it are inwardly like wolves and they will destroy you if you follow them. The question, of course, that's begged here is how do we recognize false prophets from those who are actually true and godly teachers and leaders? I mean, because if everything outside looks good, how do you know the difference? I think this is where Jesus' metaphor of the tree and fruit is really helpful. You know, we don't have a lot of trees in this part of Arizona. It's just part of the reality, right? And the trees that we call trees are actually just bushes. They're actually usually just overgrown bushes. But one thing we do have is a lot of citrus trees, right? You may have noticed this before if you've lived in Arizona for any amount of time. We have a lot of citrus trees that grow really well in this area. The thing is with a citrus tree, though, a lot of citrus trees, you can't always tell what kind of tree it is until that tree begins to put out fruit. In other words, a citrus tree looks like a citrus tree. An orange tree looks a lot like a lemon tree. A lemon tree looks a lot like a lime tree. And they, both, they all look, kind of look a lot like a, you know, a grapefruit tree. And so how do you know the difference between all of those citrus trees. I know some of you probably know just by looking at the leaf or sniffing it in some way, you know exactly what it is. But for most of us, they look, all, they look the same, and you have to wait until the fruit actually comes out to identify what kind of a tree it is. In fact, I have like a handful of citrus trees in my backyard. A couple of them are lemon trees, and the rest are orange trees. I can't even, I've been living there for over a year. I can't even tell you what is a lemon tree and what is an orange tree in my own backyard until they start putting out fruit. And even then, when they start putting out the first fruit, it's like it, they're all just green balls of fruit, right? Rounded fruit that's green. And you don't really know until they begin to take shape and they change color that, oh, that's yellow, that's a lemon, or that's orange, so that's an orange. And the point is this, is that this is exactly what it often looks like to identify people by their fruit. At first glance, it's really difficult to tell. It can be really, really extremely difficult to tell. But as you spend time and you see the tree go through seasons and you see the tree put out fruit, and not only that, but you see what kind of fruit it actually becomes over time, you begin to see a little bit more about what kind of fruit that person or that teacher or that leader is putting out. And if they survive as the seasons change and they're healthy, and as, let's say, let's say the, the healthy tree or the good tree is the orange tree and they put out orange instead of lemons, oranges instead of lemons, you can begin to make an assumption or a discernment on where that person's coming from. So as it applies to religious leaders and teachers, I think here are a few ways. I want to give you just three quick tests on this. What does it look like to actually look at the fruit of somebody, and in particular a leader and a teacher, and say this is somebody who is a godly good leader versus this is somebody who Jesus has warned us about as being a false teacher? First of all, we have to test what they teach according to Scripture. You know, false teachers are often identified by their twisting of the very core aspects of the essential natures of Scripture. So false teachers often directly contradict something that is clearly presented in Scripture, and particularly those things that relate to salvation are the ones that we want to look at and really test according to what the Scriptures have to say. For instance, just to use the example from today, if someone were to come along and say that there are many ways to salvation outside of Jesus, I think that fits both of those criteria. It's clearly said here from what we just read, clearly said in other places that Jesus says that he is the only way. And secondly, that this is an issue that relates to salvation. So it's a big deal. It's a core issue. 
It's not a fringe issue, and we should distinguish between those two things, because sometimes, you know, a, a religious leader or teacher is going to disagree with you on a non-essential thing. They don't share your view on the end times. They don't share your view on predestination. They may not share your view on, on politics or other aspects of ministry, but those things are non-essential things. The essential things are what count here, and we can often see that those who are false teachers twist the essential things, and so we're to test what they teach. Secondly, to test their character by observing their lives. As Jesus points out again through the Sermon on the Mount, especially as we walk through this gate and begin to live differently, there is a different way to which we live. We prioritize, we live in a different way. Also, as Scripture says, our spirit is changed by the Holy Spirit so that our character actually changes to be more like Jesus. Does that mean we're perfect? No. Religious leaders and teachers, trust me, I've known enough of them, I am one of them, are almost just like everybody else. And I say almost just because they're just not as honest about their sin. <laughs> Sometimes they can't be. But they're just like everybody else. They have flaws, they have sins, and so what we look at essentially is how they live the character of their life over time. What kind of fruit do they bear? Does it look like Jesus? And I think in particular one of the things that we should be looking for is the fruit of repentance. John the Baptist before Jesus had a crack at the Pharisees, John the Baptist had a crack at the Pharisees, and the one thing he called them out on is, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Calling them out as false leaders because they were not men who were known for their repentance. So what is repentance? Well, repentance means essentially saying that I am wrong and I need to turn from what it is, my sin, whatever it is that I'm thinking about, and I need my mind to be transformed so that I can follow Jesus as king. And that's a big move for most people because, and it's why most people, I think, don't repent because it's really hard to come to that conclusion that I am wrong and I need someone to save me from my sin. Not only have I made mistakes in my life, but I have sinned against the God who has created me and it's a personal thing. And because of that, I need a savior to save me from my sin. And because of that, I need a king to direct my life because I am wrong and I need someone to save me. I don't know if you've noticed, but that's not a popular message right now. I don't know that it's ever been popular, but it's certainly not very popular in the world that we live in right now. And I think someone who cannot or will not repent shows on some level that they don't recognize Jesus as king, nor do they trust him as their savior. Either because they don't think they need a savior, either because they don't think their sin is that bad, whatever it may be, or they equate their mistakes to just flaws in my personality rather than actual sins against a holy God who has created us. They have some level of guilt maybe, but nothing that they feel like they can't fix themselves. Whatever it may be, in any event, if somebody is claiming to be a Christian and they say that they don't need to repent, and not only that they've repented once, but that repentance is actually a way of life for them, that they repent consistently in life, I think we have good reason to question whether or not that person is truly a believer. Because according to John and Jesus and really the rest of the Bible, repentance is a part of our daily lives. Third and final, test their ministries by who they are pointing to. As you look at a teacher or a leader's ministry, what is the ultimate purpose for which they are serving or doing their ministry for? If you watch them long enough, they will tell you even if they don't tell you outright. You'll see it. A true teacher points to Jesus and his kingdom. Simply put, 
They line up just with what Jesus has been saying throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You can look at the Sermon on the Mount and you can say, that teacher is lining everything up with Jesus and his kingdom overall and above all. A false teacher does not. A false teacher or leader points to almost everything else as more important. Himself, his ministry, his way of living, maybe even an agenda, activism or movement, his own kind of spiritual teaching that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with Jesus. It's more kind of new age spiritual stuff that he's written three or four books on that he wants you to buy or he's got, you know, things he wants you to purchase from his teachings. For some, especially the health and wealth gospel people, it's simply about money and fame. And so they literally, like wolves, prey on those who are vulnerable, most directly and on purpose, the poor and the sick, so that they can line their pockets to buy another $5 million mansion or another $10 million private jet. Some may even mention Jesus from time to time. But it's clear that they're mentioning Jesus as a way to get something else. Jesus is either a smokescreen or Jesus is a means to get something else. Now look, to this point, Jesus has addressed a lot about religious leaders here. But what we're going to see as we finish this out in the next few minutes, these next few verses, is that not only is Jesus focusing on the religious leaders and teachers, but then he brings it home to all of us in verse 24 through 29. And he says this, Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And in verse 28, and when Jesus finished saying these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So look, from the very beginning in that, in that section right there, verse 24, everyone who hears these words, this goes out to all of us to think about, okay, am I the one then, and here's a, here's a, contra, uh, a contrast again, in two ways to live, two choices to make. Are you the one who has built your house on the rock or the sand? Are you the one who has built your life on what Jesus is saying here? Have you gone through the narrow way? Are you on the narrow path? Or are you on the path that leads to destruction? This image is another way of just repeating the same thing that Jesus began this section with. And it's meant to challenge us in a different way. Everyone who hears these words has the choice and has the decision to make. Now, at the end there, of course, Jesus is clearly teaching these things in a way that is expecting people to live these things out. Again, we've said this throughout this series, is that the Sermon on the Mount is not something that is meant for us to just take flowery, flowery spiritual kind of messages and sound bites from and kind of throw them on a coffee mug so that they inspire us to live better lives. These are meant to challenge us to live differently according to the kingdom. And Jesus brings it home here, and he says, those who do the things that I have taught you, those who do the things that I have said here, are those who have built their lives on the rock. Not those who merely listen and say, oh, that's a great idea, or that's inspiring in some way, but those who actually live these things out. Again, going back to the fruit aspect, this is how you know that you're on the narrow path. Now, in the end here, we get the reaction quickly that Matthew gives us to the people who heard Jesus' teaching 
in that moment. It's interesting. He talks about the crowds, and he says that they were greatly astonished by the authority in which he presented or the words that he said. And I think at the same time, this is great to see, but at the same time, what we have to realize is that astonished doesn't necessarily mean that they believed him or that they began to follow him. I think it's important to realize. Certainly, some of those who were astonished probably began to follow Jesus. But I think we can also assume that those who were astonished at his authority probably walked the other way and went on with their lives in the same way that they were living before. And look, this is something we have to be aware of. We can be moved, we can be inspired, we can believe Jesus was a good teacher, we can feel spiritual, we can call the Bible truth even, we can call ourselves Christians and not actually be Christians who are born again and who are following Jesus. These words of mine, as Jesus says, the gate or the way leaves us with only one conclusion and only one way. It's uncomfortable, no doubt. Jesus is not lying to us about that. He's not trying to play hide and seek. He's not beating around the bush. He's being absolutely honest. This is it. This is the way it lays out. And we either trust Jesus in the end or we don't. If you were to go, though, to the doctor this next week, and during your doctor's appointment, your doctor looked at you and said, based on the condition of your heart, if you don't stop eating these foods, if you don't start exercising, if you don't start taking this heart medication, your heart will give out within two years. And let's say you heard that news, which maybe some of you have, how devastating and how serious that can be. There's probably few things more serious than hearing that from a doctor. And you decided in your mind, yeah, I, I understand that he's a cardiologist, I understand that he knows about these things, but at the same time, and he may be the authority, or may think he's the authority on these things, but I think it's probably better for me to get another opinion, because it sounds kind of intolerant of him to tell me that this is the only way that I can live my life. And so you go to your neighbor, who's an accountant, knows nothing about hearts at all, And you say, hey, neighbor accountant, what do you think? This is what my doctor told me. He said I have to do all these things, right? I've got to stop eating the foods that I love. I've got to start exercising, which I hate doing. And I've got to take this medication every single day. What do you think I should do, neighbor the accountant? Your neighbor the accountant might say to you, man, that just sounds like That doctor's just trying to get kickbacks from the pharmaceutical companies. He just wants money because the more medicine he gives out, the more money he's going to take in and blah, 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 right? And doctors always say that, by the way. He's just trying to cover himself. Well, in the end, you could decide that that's a more tolerant position. I appreciate how tolerant you have been of the way that I would rather live my life than what this man has told me I should do instead. But at the same time, we have to come to a conclusion or realize that just because something feels good or feels comfortable does not mean that it's actually true. It does not mean that it's actually right. And Jesus shakes us up here. He makes it uncomfortable. He makes it difficult. And our first reaction is to try to explain it away like maybe there's a second opinion to this whole thing that I'm not considering. But I think as you look at it and as Jesus makes a point to repeat it over and over again, there's no other conclusion that we can come to. And it feels exclusive, it feels intolerant, but I'll I'll say this, is that the only reason that we actually have a choice in this is that Jesus made a way for us to have a choice. Without Jesus doing what he does, Jesus knows as he says this in the Sermon on the Mount, that the only way there's going to be another way is that he is going the way of the cross to make that way for us. And here's the thing, if he doesn't make that way, talk about exclusive, there's only one choice we have, and that's the broad way. At least in this scenario, we've got a choice to make. 
And it's inclusive in the sense that he says, anyone who hears these words of mine are invited to come through this gate. And it's no small thing, but it's why to be on the narrow way means to be with Jesus. And look, following Jesus as a result is not something that's added to your life. Jesus is pretty clear about this. Following Jesus either is your life or it is not. It's not asking Jesus to come into my life and continue to enrich my life. That's like asking Jesus to come on over to the broad to the broad way with you and walk that path with you. He's not going to do that. It's either my life is in Jesus or it's not. I'm on the narrow path or I'm not. I want to close by telling you a little bit about my story because I feel like this fits me very well and how I came to faith. When I was in college, I was 19 years old. I was a freshman at the University of Arizona, Bear Down. And I had grown up in the church my entire life. I'd grown up in the Southern Baptist Church. If you guys know anything about Southern Baptist churches, that means that we were at church five times a week, sometimes. My mom was on staff at the church, which meant that I was spent a lot of time in the church office. I was at the church almost every single day for a good part of, uh, a good part of my life growing up. I had memorized scripture. I knew the gospel. I had been baptized. But in a lot of ways... If you looked at my life, you might say, I don't know if I see a lot of fruit there. And as I got through high school, certainly when I began to make my own decisions, certainly my ways of making decisions were not informed at all by whether or not God is pleased with what I'm doing. I rebelled a lot, I did a lot of things, and by the time I got to college as a freshman, my life was totally unrecognizable from some of the worst, uh, you know, uh, God-haters that you might see and find anywhere. And I remember, though, one thing is that I was made to go to church every Sunday morning growing up. And once I got to college, of course, when I was in Tucson, my parents couldn't make me go to church every Sunday morning anymore. So I had a certain aspect of a certain feeling of guilt about not going to church. But I didn't want to go on Sunday mornings because Saturday night, you know, was always going to be a late night. But there was a guy who was a, called himself a campus minister, and he was basically outside of my dormitory building all the time. And he would see me. We met the first week when I moved in. And then he would see me all the time, because he would be there basically, it seemed like 24 hours a day, but he would see me coming and going in all kinds of different states of being. And one day he came up to me and invited me to a small group Bible study in the dormitory. And he said, hey, I got a small group Bible, Bible study going, it's like five other guys, and it's right on your floor, just right down the hall from where your room is. And I thought to myself, you know, I feel bad because I haven't been going to church on Sundays, so maybe I just do this instead on a Tuesday night. It'll be a lot easier. Check that off the box, and I can make sure that God is still okay with me. And I went to these Bible studies, and it was quickly clear that the other five guys in, this, in the group with me were guys who didn't know a lot about the Bible. They hadn't been in church at all. But I had grown up in, in the church, and I knew every answer. I mean, these were easy, easy answers to me, right? I could spit them out left and right. After about four or five meetings, this campus minister pulled me to the side and he said to me, hey, it seems like you know a lot of these answers that we're asking during our Bible studies and you're always the one who, you know, speaks up and answers and voices your opinion. Surprise, right? But he says, and I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I know these things. I know the Bible. And I've been a Christian since I was 11 years old. 
And he said, really? Because I see the way that you've come and gone. I've observed over the past couple months the way that it seems like you're living your life. And the way you live your life doesn't look anything like what I would assume a Christian, what I would think a Christian life would look like. And I was angry when he said that. How dare you? And I think I even said to him, it's not your place to judge me. And I got upset, and I left. Or he left, I should say. And a couple days after that, the next couple days, God was working on my heart. And that phrase kept coming up over and over again. You, she doesn't look like your life. You don't live your life like a Christian. And finally, a couple days later, I went back to him and I said, look, what you said to me really upset me. <laughs> it was offensive in the moment. I was angered by it. But at the same time, it was true, and it's exactly what I needed to hear. And that was the first day I went through the narrow gate. 19 years old. Years of thinking that I was a Christian. Calling myself that. And never being at a place where I actually repented and trusted Jesus. And look, it's been. I can see exactly what Jesus says when he says this road is difficult. It is difficult to walk as a Christian in this world. Especially if you're walking it faithfully. I think especially at times if you're a pastor, it's difficult. But here's the thing is that I would never go back on that decision that I made in that dorm room when I was 19 years old. Because simply, that's where Jesus is. And in the end, I think if you're talking about the fruit that matters, if you are a follower of Jesus, you want to be where Jesus is. And whatever it looks like as a result of that pales in comparison to the fact that you are with your King and you are with your Savior. And so this morning, as we draw this sermon to a close, the Sermon on the Mount, I think what we have to remember is that Jesus lays out for us very clearly, these are the two choices you have. It's the narrow way, which is the way that Jesus provides for us uniquely through his cross, his sacrifice, his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy that gives us new life. Or it's any other way. Fill in the blank. Doesn't matter. But the decision that you make has eternal consequences of the highest regard and the highest stakes that you can imagine. Each of these have a destiny, and each of them is leading somewhere. The question is, which path are you on? Which gate have you chosen? And it's never too late. It's never too late to go through the narrow gate. Because anyone who hears the words of Jesus is, hears afresh an invitation to walk through that gate. And so what I want to pray for all of us this morning is that we would be able to clearly see into our hearts and to see exactly where we're at. Is it true that the place I want to be more than anything is the place where Jesus is? Is it true that when I look at this kingdom that's presented to me in the Sermon on the Mount, 
That's, that's, that's exactly what I want to see happen in my life and in the world around me. Because we're about our king and our kingdom and his kingdom. So let's pray this morning that God will give us understanding. If you're at a place, maybe like I was, where you're thinking to yourself, man, I'm not sure. I'm wrestling with this. I want to pray that God would give you understanding into this. And if you're at a place where you feel like, I've got to sort this out, I don't know what this looks like, I want to encourage you to talk to somebody you know who when you look at your li- their life, you see the fruit of somebody who is a true believer. Talk to one of us on staff. But don't hesitate, don't wait. The choice and the call goes out now. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you tell us the truth. We live in a world where so often things that present themselves as the truth are not true, where so often people who claim to tell us the truth have a hidden agenda when they're trying to manipulate us in a certain way or for a certain reason. But we thank you, Lord, that you tell us the truth even when it's uncomfortable and even when it's difficult. We thank you, above all, Lord Jesus, that you have made a way for us, that you have given us a choice, that we actually do have hope, that our destiny does not have to be at the end of the broad way which leads to destruction. But Lord Jesus, because of what you have done on the cross, that you've made a way for us to move to that narrow way that leads to life. And I pray for those of us who have not made that decision yet, who are in between that place of trying to make that choice, Lord, that you would give us faith and the eyes to see what you truly mean and why it is that you have called us this way in a way that is, uh, in a way that is clear, in a way that is full of conviction, and it's because you love us and it's because you want us to be with you. And for those of us who are through the narrow gate, and we're walking through this world right now on that narrow path, and it feels difficult. And we read this, and we know, Lord, that it is difficult, and so many times we're not sure where we're going. <laughs> we're tripping over things like it's, almost, like it's almost like we're walking in the dark at times. We're full of doubt, but, Lord, we are on this place with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us by your grace and mercy, to be able to stand in the fact that we have been saved and rescued. And that we would, in those places where we need to repent, recognize that some of that stumbling in our life is because we have, been, we have failed to exercise repentance, to turn away from the things that captivate our hearts and our minds, and to turn back to you and your kingdom. And to find, Lord Jesus, that you are faithful to receive us by your grace and mercy. Whatever that looks like for us this morning, Lord, you know our hearts. I pray that you would search our hearts and direct us. We know that you can be found faithful when we seek you. And so I think back to last week where you tell us to ask and to seek and to knock. I pray that we would press in, in prayer and seeking you until we find you. Because you're not playing hide and seek with us. You are not hard to find. You are there waiting for us. Thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness. Above all, thank you for your saving power 
Lord Jesus, that makes it so that truly anyone who hears these words of yours can be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. How many of you guys have already put up Christmas decorations? Anybody? I know there's a few of you. I've seen some Facebook posts and that kind of thing. I know. Don't be shy. Put your hand up. Be, be proud. So next week, we're beginning a new series. It's actually, technically, the beginning of our Advent series. You may realize it's not Advent yet. Well, it's not. But we feel like given the year that we have had this year, <laughs> we want to start Christmas a little bit earlier this year maybe than normal. Um, but in some ways, this is really meant to be, this next se- uh, series is, is called Remember. It's meant to be a kind of joyful celebration and an encouraging series that'll take us all the way up through Christmas Eve, our Christmas Eve services. And so I want to invite you to join us again back here next Sunday morning. We're going to start and introduce that series, and then we'll move into four weeks of Advent as we celebrate and as we anticipate uh, the arrival of our Savior at Christmas time, as we think about what that means, as we think about all that that has to do with what it means to celebrate Christmas and what it means to really have probably maybe even a new meaning to what Christmas is given the year that we've had. So, uh, so join us next week. We'll start into that Remember series. We're really looking forward to that, really excited about it. Hope you guys have a great week as we move on into the, uh, the, uh, the, the heart of fall and begin to enjoy this better weather that we've had. Enjoy your week. We look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.